Hello and welcome to the Translation Company Talk, a weekly podcast show focusing on translation services and the language industry. The Translation Company Talk covers topics of interest for professionals engaged in the business of translation, localization, transcription, interpreting, and language technology. The Translation Company Talk is sponsored by YYZ Translations. Your host is Sultan Ghaznawi with today's episode. Welcome to today's episode of the Translation Company Talk podcast. I am Sultan Ghaznawi, your host, and today we are going to be discussing the impact of localization on large-scale philanthropic missions. To speak about this subject, I have invited Patrick Nunes as my guest today. As somebody who has been actively involved in localization for over 20 years, Patrick is passionate about the strength of our industry and also the constant need for us to keep evolving how we position ourselves and how we do things. From owning a language services company back in Brazil to leading localization and interpreting programs and many strategic global content and branding positioning initiatives, Patrick believes the best results are accomplished when we truly engage, inspire, and activate those around us. Welcome to the Translation Company Talk, Patrick. Thank you so much, Sultan. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad that you're here with us. Uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, what are you doing these days? Sure. Well, I was born and raised uh, in Brazil, and uh, I've been now living in Chicago in the U.S. for almost 16 years. Well, I've been used to being around the, the language industry in a way or another. Um, I used to own a language services company in Brazil when I was in my early 20s. Yeah, and then after taking um, a break and going to do volunteer work in different parts of the world and experiencing some more of what humanitarian services look like, I ended up taking a job offer that brought me to the U.S. And um, first that job was in the the recycling company, so something completely different. And then Rotary actually came along and I started with them in 2009. And uh, I started as the the time the team lead for the Portuguese team, which in, in the team which was known as a language services team. And um, since 2009, I've had different positions and had the pleasure to work in different projects within that team and the communications group overall passed on being uh, things evolved and I became even a, an interpreter myself, managed interpretation quality, then eventually became the manager of global communications for, for Rotary International. And then today I, I serve as the director of global communications and design for the organization. So it's been languages were around my life for a long period of time when I was younger. It's always been a passion of mine and, um, eventually it has come full circle and, and here I am. Wow, quite an interesting journey. Let me start by asking what piqued your interest to get involved in the language and translation industry. You alluded to it a little bit, but was it by accident or designed? Was it a well-planned move? Uh, no, it was, it was pretty much by accident. You know, my, my background was in business administration. And eventually I, I started working very early on and I, I started as an English teacher. And then eventually I, I decided to open my own company that had classes and had translation services. At the time, I was I was looking at this as an entrepreneurial opportunity, 
and something that was again close to my heart because I loved studying languages and I was fascinated by different cultures overall. And then eventually, again by casual, you know, casualty being in the U.S., um, Rotary came along, and the position that was offered to me was directly in the localization and translation arena at the time and so I made that transition and I think everything kind of came home to me you know personally something that was so close to me and kind of again became full circle so it was not necessarily something that I was dreaming of to set as a career path you know 20 or 25 years ago well that means you've come a long way and where are you now in terms of Rotary International do you run that uh, localization department and how has it evolved since you've just uh, since you've taken over? Yeah, so uh, right now, you know, I again as a director of global communications and design, our team is responsible for different aspects within the communications group, and in those aspects, do include localization, translation, transcreation, interpretation in one side. And as I mentioned, I started when the team was called Language Services, so those were the main functions of that team. And as I had the opportunity to grow and take on new responsibilities within the team and help shape the format of that team and what the team was intended to do, today we sit as global communications and uh, on that side. And I have you know, great managers in that team and leaders who, who oversee those aspects, but they also oversee something that is different from when I started is that we put forward a proposal a few years ago to go on this journey to expand the scope of global communications overall. So that team, you know, includes, you know, some of their tasks that they do include creating original content, original content on social media. They manage those accounts. They write, you know, stories that are relevant to certain parts of the world. And they work closely with our regional magazines that we have, three of them around the world in terms of exchanging content. And we have part of that team that looks into English as content, our global content team, not only from copy editing, but also from content development and making sure that the English is of global nature overall. And then on the design side, I have the privilege to work with great visual graphic professionals that bring a lot of what we we set forward, you know, in terms of visual element, representation of, of what we plan and our initiatives overall. So it's been a good journey and, and it has shifted a lot. Again, when I started from language services, it was the main focus really was on translation, interpretation. It still is. Some of that is still is relevant for us. However, our scope has expanded along the years. The topic of our discussion today is the impact of localization on large-scale philanthropic missions. Uh, let's talk about how you implement localization in your organization. Absolutely. So, yeah, so as I mentioned, we've been through this journey that, you know, would take me, you know, this whole episode of your podcast to describe. <laughs> but in a nutshell, you know, again, the localization is really led by our global communications team and their role really is beyond localizing content, right? So mm-hmm. it's it's very important that we play in a strategic role being Rotary, such a global organization, the bread and butter of what we do is still relies on turning content around and making sure content is relevant. But it, again, it goes beyond that. Our, the main mission of that team, the global communications team, is really to provide content that's regionally relevant and inspiring to our global audiences. That's the key for us. I'm sure you somehow track how your content plays a role within the overall organization. I'm not talking just localized type of content. So how do you measure localization or the ROI for localization in every market where you launch content? So at Rotary, you know, our approach for localization has been getting closer and closer to 
the global marketing goals of the organization, the communications goals overall. So that was one thing that was very important to us as we redefined the role of the global communications team. It was very important to align with the overall perspective of what kind of returning on investment we want on content overall, right? So we look at, you know, we follow overall metrics that are tied to engagement of content being the website or social media or tied to specific membership trends that we might have or also tied to fundraising goals and campaigns that we might have. So the metrics will vary and we've been getting better and better in terms of aligning ourselves in a more strategic manner, not only from the planning and development of content, localization of content, but also looking at those metrics. So, and they tie overall now more directly with other goals and other metrics that the organization has as a whole. I'm sure you have KPIs that measure the success of localization and its impact on other business functions Please share with me how you define those in the context of the overall corporate strategy. Absolutely, yeah. So for us, it's really important that everything we're looking at aligns with the overall communication strategy, as I mentioned, you know, and and that, you know, in its own turn is aligned to our strategic plan of the organization overall. So what we've been doing is we create, you know, this tactic goals that have, you know, metrics attached to them that and they're not isolated. Right. So um, even though we have been currently creating KPIs for the global communications team and our strategy that are related to regional content creation you know, through social and other means, it's very important that our overall goals really ladder up to the strategic goals of the organization. So everything goes hand in hand. Right. So we, as, we, as I mentioned, we're part of the communications team. As a communications group, we, we develop our goals and our strategies and our tactics uh, localization follows suit, but taking into consideration the global and regional, you know, aspects of our organization as a whole. On that note, does localization happen centrally, or is it more of a decentralized approach to moving the local communication push to your local providers? Yeah, it's interesting because for the longest time we've run a very centralized approach at, at Rotary, and when we revamped the approach from language services to global communications, one of our pitch was to be able to provide more flexibility so content in in its global nature wouldn't just flow from the headquarters of Rotary out, but also content really now has an opportunity to flow from the ground where the clubs are, where the content lives back up. So it's more of a circular movement at this point. However, the function of localization is centralized, right? So we have, it lives in one group, in in one of our teams within the organization, but we have a more decentralized approach to how we treat content overall. But localization per se is still centralized for better control of budget, for better control of messaging, quality, and other elements of content. Understood. And I understand that Rotary is a global network with lots of members, millions of members probably. The mission is pretty clear in helping people and creating community leaders. How does language and localization enable better delivery of services to vulnerable people. Well, yeah, so uh, overall, you know, Rotary is present, Rotary clubs are, are, are present in, in more than 200 countries and geographic areas, right? So for us, mm-hmm. meaningful content that can be truly understood is crucial, right? So overall, the clubs are autonomous. The, you know, we Rotary International, as I, as I said, as the staff is, we are the administrative body that supports, you know, 35, 36,000 clubs 
there with 1.2 million members. So the clubs are autonomous. They look at what's going on in their region and their communities. They come up with their own projects and we help them, you know, from a administrative perspective to help them, empower them to do what they need to do. And even though they're autonomous, you know, they and, and they vary from, you know, city to city or even within the same city, you might have clubs that are that look different in, in terms of their priorities, in terms of what projects, you know, they work on. But overall, we have a common thread of what we call Rotary members are people of action, right? So they see right, right when something needs to be done and they take action. But of course, there are different, again, differences and emphasis that can happen in distinct across the board. So one of the the main roles of, of localization for us is really making sure that our overall messaging and our brand positioning really happens in a consistent manner, right? So our goal, again, is to empower our members with information that is relevant to them and really encourages them to be brand ambassadors in, in their own regions, right, on, on the ground. So basically, that's the one of the main roles that localization has to enable and empower them to do the work that they do every day. Patrick, let me ask you this. Uh, you mentioned that your localization team is part of your overall uh, communication team, but how is that localization team structured? Do you handle everything in-house or do you manage uh, a set of vendors that deliver these languages for you? Well, it's actually both. So we actually have an in-house, again, the global communications team that cover most of our Rotary languages. One can call the official languages of Rotary. And their functions, again, include localization, transcreation of content. And as I mentioned, they also create original content. They manage their social media accounts on a global presence. And some folks in that team are actually also interpreters. And we also have, and I think I mentioned this earlier, the, the global content team who looks after our English content, not only helping the content creation across the organization be developed and make sure that it has a global tone, but also making sure that everything is on voice and on tone of our brand, right? So however, the, the functions of localization, uh, interpretation and the Rotary languages and other languages and the copy editing also are complemented with external vendors. So we have a hybrid model. So our managers across the team run these relationships with our vendors, both either them being agencies or freelancers that we work with. So we have an in-house team and we outsource some of the content that we are not able to take care of in-house. Uh, I see. So you mentioned that you have both freelancers and LSCs that work with you. Uh, how do you determine where to source the content from, the localization content from, and what actually guides that decision? Because most of the audience today is, in our case, they're LSC executives, and they would like to know, for example, what what guides uh, Rotary's decisions in terms of doing business with them versus freelancers. So for us, it's been a long journey as well. And our approach overall has changed, not only from who we work with, but also what type of content we outsource. In the past, it was based mostly on capacity. As right. we the team couldn't handle things anymore in-house, we would outsource. But right now, we have a different strategy that we really look at the types of content that we think it's more beneficial for the team in-house to handle and the types of content that's more beneficial to be outsourced. And those relationships, they have varied. For the longest time as well, when I started, we worked solely with freelancers. You know, a few years ago, we, we've we decided to diversify based on our strategy. So we saw that 
value in also forming partnerships with agencies that could work with us for different types of subjects or have different types of turnaround or to be able to scale faster and better. So even in that arena of outsourcing, we like to keep this combination model of using direct freelancers and also using some agencies. We've been able to build strong relationships with our freelancers not only in translation and interpretation, but also in the copy editing uh, arena. And we also have been able, finally, after quite some time and quite some thought and strategy behind, to establish good relationships with uh, larger agencies as well. Good to hear that. Now, uh, do you see the format and the nature of content changing that would impact the way you process them for localization? By, by that, what I mean is, uh, you mentioned earlier that you have you do quite a bit of transcription within your own team. Are you seeing that more content needs to be created from scratch and to these target languages uh, to to meet the cultural and social aspect of you know the the, the target market? Yeah, I believe so. I think that was one of the one of the reasons um, why it has taken us a long period of time to find the right partners. Because even though we could say, and I in a period of time we were somehow under a rock in terms of behind, in terms of where the industry was, in terms of localization, and however, one of the things that has always been present and has always been point of pride for our team is that we've we've had full autonomy in terms of the content. So the localized content, we generally say, once it leaves your hands in English the source or the source language, it's our content to deal with. So we've always had the freedom and liberty and autonomy to handle the content in a way that doesn't mirror necessarily a literal translation per se, because we've always seen the importance of that. And being an in-house team that has given us more leverage to do so. And I think in terms of working with external partners, many times that could be a challenge to find partners that can truly understand how we approach content. So we do see the the benefit, and now we have segmentation of content that we understand that some types of content, of course, live in the realm of literal translation and, and close to the source, and some of them mainly those that we, we foresee the benefit of, of a, we definitely value and, and leverage the knowledge and the flexibility that we have to turn this content to be as relevant as possible. Consistency and quality is something that you um, probably is very important for your team. Uh, for an, an organization like Rotary, is I'm sure it's paramount. How do you define matrix to ensure you get top of the line language uh, content? Yeah, we, we rely, you know, mostly on the expertise of our in-house team, you know, to either do the work or most importantly, when we're working with external partners to coach and guide them, you know, through the process. Rotary is very unique, and I'm sure every organization will say that in terms of, of its lingo, and and Rotary really has some very specific terminology that can compromise the quality of, we have a lot of acronyms. Uh, Rotary really is very specific in terms of how we communicate internally. As I mentioned a few years ago, we we're really under this rock, and and but the vision really was that we wanted this team to become more than just the language service provider providers, right, and elevate the position of this team. So quality, of course, was a main aspect of why it's been so important to keep this team and, and evolve them throughout the process. So we've been able to work very closely with our stakeholders to really bring us to a better place in, in terms of implementing technologies that can help us with quality, right? Conducting 
processes, reviews, and this overall identity of adaptation, you know, of the team. That's that's been very important for us. So those all those elements all have contributed to guaranteeing us to create metrics around quality. One of one of the roles within the team, I, I had that role at one point. We you know should manage quality. At the time, you know, I we created a, a quality assurance program. And, and now we're actually currently reviewing that program and putting together or updating this plan to align with our overall KPIs review process that we're actually currently undertaking. Okay. And who defines the overarching quality measures and benchmarks within your organization? Is that your team or it comes from somewhere else? We define that. So, But of course, we, we listen to feedback from, and, and as we're hoping to redesign the system of quality assurance, will continue to take really all, all this into consideration. We define the overall KPIs, and, and but we are also, again, as I mentioned, now much better equipped to make decisions based on data, right? So now we're being able, as we align and partner with others within communications in terms of content, we're able you know, to shift that, that concept or we're, we're trying and we hope we're able to shift that concept that, oh yeah, the English is out there. That's all that matters. Now we just exist and check the box that content exists now in other languages, but also we're really going one step or two steps you know, ahead and say, okay, so give us back the, those metrics. Let us know how we are doing, how that content is doing to help shape the metrics of quality overall. Our end users, uh, when they have any points of feedback, staff, coworkers on, on the ground in different parts of the world, and also the technology that we have been applied to be able to caliber points of quality and the metrics that follow it. And when it comes to the globalization aspect of your public-facing communication, how does that get decided? Who decides to add a new language and what does that process look like? Well, our rotary languages are decided by our board of directors and they have been stated in our bylaws for quite some time. And every now and then you might have a board member who might see an opportunity to to leverage you know, certain locales and, and the people from that area. And they might make a pitch to the board to add a new language as part of one of the rotary, the core languages that we have. Our global communications managers also make decisions constantly about adding a certain language for a certain type of communication based on the need of a certain campaign, or or they even make the decision sometimes not to have something done in a certain language, even that might be a rotary language, because we might not see the return on that investment. So we're constantly looking at content to see uh, what's the strategy behind, you know, if, if it comes from from overall this, the requesters that are the, the internal stakeholders that we have, they might just have that, you know, knee-jerk reaction to say, well, we need to do this in every language. And our team, as part of being, you know, involved in, in helping them shape strategy, might add a language or might subtract a language based on what the goals are and the intent is behind that communication. And at times, uh, have you found yourself uh, trying to remove a certain language because it doesn't make sense or it's too close to another language and that community might be able to take advantage of, uh, you know, your existing content? How do you manage those type of situations? Yeah, so uh, we, we try to manage them one-on-one one -on -one with the you know with our business units with our stakeholders if they're on a creative campaign again we really try to work early on with them to get a better understanding of what they're trying to achieve so we can better work with them and help develop this strategy 
behind. But at the at the overall level of rotary language overall, we haven't got to the point of striking out uh, a language as you know, from the bylaws. Uh, but we have been able to adjust and adapt. So we have a couple of languages that are in our bylaws as uh, rotary languages. However, we're very strategic to what kinds of communication and what part of our audience receives the communication in that in their own language. So there are a few examples there of certain campaigns that we do and some of these languages we don't have for those languages. For example, we don't have anybody in house. We only use external resources. So we, we haven't made a pitch to strike out a language, but it, it does vary. So, for example, in our convention, our international annual conference that gathers thousands of, of, of our members from around the world, provide interpretation. So that's, for example, a point of discussion of what languages do we offer? We offer our basic languages, but there have been occasions where we added a language or took a language out, even though the bylaw might say that we needed but because of low attendance or, you know, however the, the situation might be in order to maximize our resources. So it does vary case by case. Interesting. Patrick, let me ask you about technology. It has become intertwined with translation, especially, and also making its inroads with, with interpreting. Most companies rely on machine translation to get a leg up uh, within the industry. Does it matter for Rotary how the translation was created? I mean, do you distinguish between a human translated content piece and uh, one that was created or produced by post-edited machine translation. Um, yes, it's, it's, that's very important to us. Even though we were in a period oh, that we were like under a rock and we were really not relying on technology for quite some time, including machine translation and translation memory. But we went through a very robust process in order to revamp our approach. And that has given us the opportunity to look at content differently, right? So segmenting content that makes sense to, to be processed through through whatever means we, we have, either being human or relying on, on transition memory or machine translation. So that's very important to us. Our strategy is very careful in, in determining the types of content that, you know, where they fit for, and we've, we've come a long way. We, we've come from the, you know, from the old fashioned mentality that, you know, good quality is only quality done with, you know, by humans, 100%. And we've come through adapting and adopting these uh, these technologies and and you know training our team members for post editing and so we've been able to leverage technology more and more, but always keeping in mind that who's the audience, who's going to be in touch with this content. We have made a few pitches for certain initiatives that we have that might be online initiatives that we get requests to to provide a human translation and we've made pitch to adding a, an auto translation you know a machine translation engine to a certain page or something like that that we foresee to be you know a better return on our investment based on again the audience and how that content is going to be consumed let me ask you about uh, the amount of content you process uh, let's say in a given year do you have an, any average number of words that you localize every year or is that something that you don't keep track of Oh, we surely do. Yeah, we, we, you know, we, in terms of source content, we were looking, you know, in terms of, of content overall, it's an average of uh, 4 million words uh, or so a year. And, and again, it varies, uh, it varies year to year, but an average of 4 million to 5 million words a year. Let's shift gears and, and talk about some client side challenges. What keeps your localization team up at night? I mean, that's a cliche way of saying things. <laughs> <laughs> what bothers them? Well, actually, interesting, because I think our main challenges overall rely on the internal understanding of the role of this team, right? Right. 
Right. What are we here for? Why why do we exist? We have made, again, quite some progress to be involved at earlier stages of many key initiatives in the organization. Client side, uh, thinking of our team as clients of, of localization, when it comes to that, I think our main concern is making sure that we're able to keep the balance of work you know, that's most relevant to our in-house team and managing the limited budget that we have to outsource, right? So that, for example, is a big point for us is to how do we cope with it all with the balance of in-house, knowing that the team does more than just localization, how do we outsource and and stay within budget? How do we get the quality that we want? So basically, it's, it's the overall you know, day by day of keeping things afloat. And uh, you mentioned budget being an issue with outsourcing. What kind of other issues and challenges do you uh, face with your vendors and suppliers that you wish you didn't? Well, overall, we were, we're very satisfied today with our vendors and suppliers as, as a whole. And, uh, and it has taken us a long time to get where we are today. That's for sure. But most challenges generally would have to do with that initial learning curve, right? And the training. We've, right. as I mentioned, we have had the autonomy over the localized content for quite a long time now. So finding partners that truly understand our approach to localization used to be our main pain point. But because we have developed this very persistent approach to engage on how to engage our vendors and our partners, we have always looked at them as extensions of our teams. That's for us, it's crucial. It's very, very crucial. And not, you know, because I understand that many times, uh, as I talk to, to fellow members of the industry out there, many times the relationship client-vendor turns to, to become transactional. And for us, that's something that we've been able to grow away from. And by being persistent and really insisting on the relationship approach of and seeing them as extensions of our teams versus simply our vendors, really has helped us get where we, we've got today. Uh, you mentioned something about that misalignment between uh, your expectations and uh, what the vendor is expecting. What is it that vendors get wrong about the needs, wants, challenges, and wishes of a large-scale enterprise client like Rotary? We've had experiences in the past with potential vendors that really were not much interested in building that relationship that I just talked about, right? And that really has, it would show they went about the way they approached us or treated us or the way we were developing that relationship, but eventually in the work that they delivered, right? For us, you know, as a humanitarian organization that really relies on, on human beings to move it forward, you know, we carry these principles of, of relationship and human aspect of true partnership very closely to our hearts. We really, we really carry those principles really attached to our hearts because that's important to us that we are seen as as true partners, not necessarily again a transaction. That makes sense. And and normally, uh, how do you get that sense that uh, your vendor is transactional in nature versus one that wants to be partner with you? In my opinion, I think uh, first trust needs to be built. So. It uh, doesn't matter if it's it's the business deal or whatever. You two people need to trust each, each other in order to tell each other what they want. And then after that, I guess if they need to do business, that ha- needs to happen as well. But do you find that a lot of people uh, take advantage of that? Do you see that people, as you said, are too transactional? They just want to get the, the work done and move on or something? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because I think the key to this is is on time, right? As you mentioned, trust is, is crucial and, and it, it takes time, right, to build right. trust. And and I often say, you know, in, in some settings in terms of where we are today, where, in terms of where the world is today, we are in this really 
more than ever insta everything approach right everything wants very is very fast we want return very fast we want things to be solved very fast we are you know as society i, I believe that we were conditioned now to this immediacy and because of that the nature that we are today as as a society i believe that even though partners out there my my say that oh we have you know they might say or potential vendors might say we have a a, a relationship person that's going to be really taking care of of you as our client and and I believe those functions exist but overall I think this immediacy approach many times gets on the way and and you feel it you know it right that even though there might be somebody who's dedicated to your to you as a client there might be what they are telling you many times I think I see partners or potential partners getting caught up in this immediacy thing so if you don't give them the return that they expect or get to the level of, of relationship that they were expecting and it shows it shows on 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 you know frustration or it shows on impatience or it shows on on not truly really understanding where you need to go together because it is definitely not a sprint it's definitely a marathon uh, that's interesting and and it's a very nice segue to my next question what does a localization manager in, in your department expect from their vendor at the end of the day Getting the work done is a major part of the relationship, but there is a human element to the relationship, as you just mentioned. Yes, absolutely. For us, it really boils down to looking at our partner and truly seeing them as an extension of our team, right? The relationship is there. They get it. They're with us, right? They're not there just for us, but they are with us. They right. know that their success, you know, our success is their success. They truly understand that. So, and that's, I think, what, what they expect is expect to get to the level of understanding where both parties feel that you can really work, you know, work closely as one team. Uh, and we know the resources out there vary and all that, but it all relies on on that touch point that we have with with the main folks that are involved in the, in the front end of, of their relationship on the on the vendor side absolutely and do you involve your uh, your team your localization team and the team and the content development and the generation process as well if so what does that look like what does you know that that role kind of has a shape how can you explain it yes and it's and it's evolving and that was again one of the main pillars to pitch a vision to go from language services to global communications and because that didn't used to happen and even though it happens now it it's it's evolving it doesn't happen right. as much as we would like and we keep working on it it's a, it's a constant element of our day to day we have definitely made some progress you know and it varies from our global content team, they have the opportunity to help folks develop content in the source language, English, you know, making sure that they really take into consideration the style, making sure that English is not really Americanized in its tone because a lot of our content creators are here in the United States. And I and, and the global communications managers and I, we also sit in our enterprise projects, not only to bring uh, a globalized perspective, but also to, to take, you know, to bring to the table the importance of localization and the role localization plays within the project. And it's actually evolving even further. Our current managers in the global communications team, they're in the process now to develop a new structure with members of our in-house team to be set as consultant teams that can support different areas of the organization, you know, such as the marketing area, or the philanthropy area, or the membership area. So we also have been working very closely with our colleagues and, and as I mentioned, and we're part of a content strategy board that we have, you know, and content strategy teams that also work very closely 
business units. So the idea is really to connect those dots, right? So we went from being at the end of the process to being now able to be more strategically placed in the front end, right? And, and working Upstream. with content development, yeah. working with stakeholders. And uh, again, it's 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 not always easy, but, and it's a work in progress. And I don't think it's ever going to change, um, but we're happy to be part of that discussion and happy to be where we are today, for sure. Very interesting. Patrick, now on that note, do you work with other departments, for example, marketing and, and even your client uh, support teams to explain to them how your the, the localization enables them to do business internationally better compared to the fact if this team didn't do this work? And how do you prove it to them that, that you're delivering solid value to them? That's really has been part of our approach and change management overall is how do we get to them in terms of helping them understand the value that we bring, right? And that's always, right. again, a constant exercise for sure. So we one of the things that, you know, early on in 2015, 16, when we were pitching this idea to, you know, evolve this team, we really paid attention to how we were doing things. We really took a deep dive look internally. We really had to do a, a self-assessment to where we were, you know, to be able to shape and reshape the value that we can bring. And, and from there, uh, we realized, and uh, there was a quite extensive process, we realized that we were we had a lot of gaps internally, right? So we, we looked inwards first in order to get our, our house in order in terms of creating guidelines, you know, helping people understand how to work with us even something as simple as, as how to submit a request to us. When do you talk to us? Why are we here, right? Uh, when can we expect to work with you? And what you can expect from us. So, and that has evolved from written documentation and guidelines to we conduct every now and then, you know, show and tells with the organization. We do lunch and learns. We do open houses. Uh, every December, we the, the organization offers something that they call a learning week where folks in the organization can offer courses and we make sure that we're always there, either not only talking about this is what we can do, but we go beyond, right? We have had sessions to give people tips on how to write with a global audience in mind or how to speak in front of a global audience. What are the things, what are the tips that we can you have to keep in mind as a speaker? So we, for us, it's really important that they not only see us as what my content is going to look like and in what languages, but as really true partners in terms of what global, what a global approach has to be. Absolutely. Uh, let's change gears here a little bit and, and let's talk about um, the value of working with teams that are in-country. Do you have that as a requirement and, and what type of uh, improvement do you see when you work with uh, an in-country team? That's another aspect for us that's also a hybrid. Uh, we see the value in that of, to the point that we have expanded our team to have members who are in-country. And, and however, we also value our members who are based here in the U.S. as 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 much, you know, because they can provide support in situations that can be unprecedented, you know, that can be unforeseen. So with most of our operations happening here in the U.S., uh, we see great benefit in having the team that we have here. And we, we do believe, again, that the best strategy is a mix of both approaches based on, you know, different needs or expectations counting on folks that are, you know, within our time zone at easy reach, uh, but also relying on on staff members and and external partners that are in country. For us, that's, again, the best of both worlds. Let's uh, cover some of the challenges that are extrinsically on the horizon for all of us. 
we have social, political, economic and, and environmental challenges facing the world today. In your opinion, how does localization and translation play a role in forging better understanding and promoting the values of Rotary? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Very challenging times. We truly believe, you know, at Rotary in empowering our end users. That to us is crucial. It really is all about them. Right. Um, Rotary is a global organization that happens from the ground up. I often say that if you think of Coca-Cola or you can name another organization out there of, of a, on a global scale, I often say with all due respect that they are, you know, Coca-Cola, for example, is, a, is an American, you know, organization with a phenomenal, amazing global presence. Uh, Rotary, on the other hand, is what I call truly global, right? We have our world headquarters here outside of Chicago, but regardless of what we decide here in the headquarters, Rotary truly happens day in and day out in our 36,000 clubs out there, right? So for us, localization really plays a very important role. And and I think given the the current circumstances, I think COVID, uh, you know, and and the pandemic is a good example of that, right? As it happened, there was a lot of concern, you know, what would be of our club meetings and and our exchange of ideas overall. But because Rotary happens on, on the ground, we here at the headquarters, we have been able to quickly shift gears, right, and, and meet the needs of our clubs, right? So so we saw a, a reprioritization within our organization that, for example, put remote interpretation at the top of our list, right, for instance. And we needed to be continued to disseminate content and meet our users where they are, right? That for us, that's important. So all the progress that we have made with our stakeholders uh, so far growing as a team have truly spoken to how a global approach is key for the success of our organization, right? For us, it's not about we're going to acquire this technology because it's going to mean that you're, you know, we're going to only save this much money. For us, it's what what does it mean to the user end, uh, to the user, you know, the, the end user overall? What does it mean to those where actually where we need to empower, that we need to leverage? Because that's the only way of truly empowering them, right? Um, so they they can continue to do the work that they do in their communities pretty much everywhere they are. That's something actually. Uh, it tells me that Rotary is very serious about delivering value to its end users, which uh, in most cases, when it comes to localization, a lot of companies really leave that as an afterthought. It's basically, you know, whatever content we're delivering in English, it gets translated, someone uses it. So from what you're telling me is that in terms of Rotary, you're thinking about the end user within that country to see what their specific needs are and you deliver that type of content for them. That's correct. So that helps us, again, go beyond, right? Uh, again, we, we could just stick to the to our Rotary languages that are in our bylaws, but for us, we know it's much more important to meet our end users where they are. So for example, we just had our very first all-member email campaign. So for the very first time in the organization, we sent an email to every member that we had data from in our database, right? And again, if this was probably 10 years ago, most likely the approach would have been, let's use the languages that are in our bylaws. However, the folks were, you know, our corporate communications team really came to us and because they understand the value, and we see that as progress, right? They really came to us and say, okay, can you tell us what language we should do this because we really want to make sure that this hits home, right? So we were able then to work with, you know, data in terms of membership, in terms of uh, where our main donors are and whatnot to see where the gaps were. So, and, and the campaign overall has been very successful. 
successful. So we really think about the end user, right? So what's the needle that we want to move and what does it mean to me to receive content in my own language and what it means to me to receive content in a, in a second language. And there's a good example that even though you know, a lot of folks out there had received content in a second language for this specific campaign. We really thought it through. Of course, unfortunately, we can't do this with every piece of communication that we have. But from a strategic perspective, we are starting to to see this more and more. And most importantly, see others in the organization understanding that importance and coming to us for advice and for for a strategy. Okay. And would you say the demand for localization will change in the next 12 to 24 months from a buyer's perspective? If so, in which direction do you see changing? Yeah, in terms of, of demand for localization, as we can see, you know, our industry, you know, our numbers grow exponentially every year, right? There's no doubt about that. We have right, more right. and more content being localized, right? Everybody can agree with that. Meaning, again, that more and more folks have slightly better understanding of, of the importance of localization, right? They might not know necessarily the intimacy of, of the importance, but they, they get a, a gist of it, right, in global communications overall. So I think that's that's going to con- continue to happen. I think, again, in, in the society that we live today, I think we're going to continue to see a lot of, of that push for, for immediacy, for speed, and I just hope that we don't lose track of some other important elements, you know, that can sacrifice quality, for example, for speed and other things. I think there's a tendency for stakeholders to be more and more interested in that and, and forget some other aspects. And then if I think of, you know, the next 12 to, to 24 months, from a general perspective, another thing I think that has been changing and evolve uh, and evolving, and I think will continue to do so, is on um, if I think of vendors, for example, overall, is how they truly stand, right, in in their values, not only from a marketing sales perspective, but how do you translate your words, you know, your values into action, right? I think that's going to be something that's going to continue to change more and more as a buyer. I'm looking out there and seeing, okay, where does this potential vendor stand in the face of social and human changes that are happening around us? You know, I know more and more organizations are interested in not only the relationship that we can create and or how much things will cost or the quality of the content, but also in, in you know who you truly are as a company. You know, what are your values? How do you put them to, to life? How do you bring them to life? And what roles you know you and your teams will play you know in society overall? I think that's another ten- trend that I think we're going to continue to see more and more. Very interesting. And uh, would you like to see? things improve on a macro level in the language industry, what things would you like to see change? Well, I think one improvement I would I would love to see on, at this micro level, as you mentioned, I think would be how do we harness, how do we take all the knowledge and experience that we have, right, as an industry, because we have a lot. We have uh, so many great professionals out there, and I'm always in awe, you know, every pretty much every week when I get to interact with folks on LinkedIn and, and meet new people out there. And I would love to see an improvement in terms of how we can play a bigger role when it comes to global leadership, right? It's not just about, again, checking that box of what global means. And I think we lack that today. I think we have mastered the aspects of localization of the discipline itself. And I think we'll continue to evolve and continue to master that. But I would love to see more conversations around the roles that we can play as agents of that true global leadership. I think something that really takes into consideration, you know, the topics that are around us today, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, because we we come from from a lot of those backgrounds that have dealt with those items and, and those topics in our personal and professional lives and 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 what traits you know 
global leaders really need to have. I think we from from this industry, we really have some advantage there because we have experience in, in so many levels. And I think we can really help shape the, the future generations in terms of what global leadership should be, regardless of the industry that they are part of. Absolutely. Well, with that, uh, we have reached the end of our discussion. I've asked all my questions and, and you have so eloquently and beautifully answered them. Patrick, thank you so much for that. But uh, uh, before I, I end this conversation, I would like to ask, what advice and thoughts would you like to share with the language industry? What would you like them to do? And do, as you said, we are dealing with all types of crises right now. I think there, there are a few things that, that come to mind. I think, again, we're, we're a very strong industry overall. And I think the world really needs us more than ever. And again, in a capacity that really goes beyond how we turn content around, right? We have a lot of expertise and, and right. passion in our industry. And, and you know, there, there are a few principles that I that I like to go by. And I think if we all apply them one way or another, I think they will be great. And, and like one is, you know, that I truly believe that everybody has something to offer, no matter where you sit at the table. And I think our industry is a good example of that. They are. And I think that's important to do so. I also believe that, you know, if you have, if your heart is in the right place and you really want to create, you know, positive impact, I believe that every vision really can become reality. And I also believe, especially in, in the days that we are today, that, you know, and I think we are being challenged more and more with what's out of our control. And with that said, I, I also believe that, you know, the status quo is really there to be challenged, it really should serve as a guide, you know, for us to change and grow. So I think, you know, overall, the benefits of coming together as as peers and exchange ideas like we're doing right now and finding solutions, I think those benefits are huge. So so I think we should never stop doing just that. And I think we, we can all grow and, and learn uh, personally and professionally if we if we don't stop doing that. Patrick, thank you for your time and, and insights you shared with us today. I really enjoyed speaking with you and learning about localization and global vision about localization in this industry. It really impresses me. I hope we can discuss some of these topics in more detail in the future. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Absolutely, Sosa. Thank you for the opportunity. It's a pleasure to talk to you. As usual, I discussed three products that are relevant to topic of our discussion. Today we have covered translation for the greater good and the community and I'll be reviewing products that apply to this area. First on my list is Google Translate. While a standard machine translation engine, probably the most powerful in the wild, it is a very handy tool to allow communication between multiple languages. Given the vast pools of data that Google has access to, this tool has been trained to deliver translation across a large number of language combinations. This tool has helped refugees and asylum seekers communicate and find help. I give it a 9 out of 10. Second on my list is tools that Translators Without Borders offer. As the leading nonprofit in our industry, they have found ways to use technology such as machine translation to deliver text and speech-based tools to help large numbers of people in disaster zones find ways to communicate. This reduces wastage of aid and allows aid workers to focus on areas with the highest demand for help. I rate it at 10 out of 10. Third on my list is Translation Cards, developed by Mercy Corps and UNHCR with the help of Google and ThoughtWorks. This app allows users to create and use simple audio and visual flashcards so that refugees can hear a pre-translated phrase spoken aloud in their language. While still being tested, the idea is very simple and has great potential to allow communication between asylum seekers and aid workers where the language spoken by both parties form a rare combination to translate or interpret. 
This tool gets a 9 out of 10 for its efficiency and its purpose. That's all for today and I hope you enjoyed our episode with Patrick. He certainly has interesting and exciting experiences that he shared with us and I'm hoping you had a chance to take away a few points that you could apply to your business. Subscribe to the Translation Company Talk podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or your favorite platform. Make sure to give us a 5-star rating. That means a lot to us. Keep your feedback and comments coming. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode.